0: hey man hey how's it going not too bad not too bad how's your week uh it's been good it's been busy uh i don't really have anything interesting to report from a software development standpoint but uh yeah it's been good nice uh, nice how about you uh, i mean just to dive in uh you got back from uh in atlanta right yeah yeah what's to uh it was
1: super nice i got back on wednesday
0: Okay. It was a cool conference. Can you can you remind me, is it an like iOS focused conference or software development in general?
1: It was iOS focused, yeah. Uh, a large number of the talks were actually one of the themes of the conference was like architecture stuff. So you oh, like, architect your app. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I thought you would like that. There was, I think, three of the I think it was maybe ten talks. Three of them were all about architecture and like um what patterns you should use
0: what sort of uh like what kinds of architecture were covered did it go from like kind of standard apple style mvc to like more exotic things was it all exotic things
1: it, it was okay so two of them basically were like mvvm is the way to go uh mvvm maybe plus a little reactive uh, it was like that kind of that approach so Christoph gave one talk oh cool uh, on architecture so he did a, like an mvvm plus reactive plus flow coordinators that was his there was somebody else uh who I've I've never met before but his name is Michael Ayers, and he was also suggesting like you know a different bunch of different uh, architecture patterns that you could do and um he was primarily pushing MVVM but also saying you know you know you got to figure out the pattern that works best for yourself and
0: and getting all that that is something that like I think gets lost in discussions like this is I mean, depending on the app, depending on the project, depending on the size of your team, depending on who you're working with, like different architectures, um, like different architectures make sense for different projects. There's not really a, you know, one size fits all right answer, I would say.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely right. One of the things I do think is important is whatever architecture you do pick, stay consistent within that app.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely I think that
1: could be really good. So once you learn the pattern for one or two screens, you can kind of use that knowledge of that pattern to like kind of get a sense of every other screen. Yeah. And how it's it's sort of laid out and and set up. The third uh, architecture talk, which was the most interesting to me, was Dave DeLong did an architecture talk. And he was basically saying, he said a bunch of really interesting things. His approach was essentially treat UI view controllers as though they are UI views. Like okay. basically never subclass UI view. If you need some special, like the only time you should subclass UI view is if you're overriding draw rect. Like, if you're drawing, then you can use a view. Otherwise everything happens in a view controller. Like if you want to group a bunch of views together, that happens in a view controller. Okay. And then your view controller sort of touch data as well. You have your model layer that doesn't change. And then he was basically saying, add another layer, the controller layer, that uh, basically like tells everything what to do. And what I really like that, about that approach is that it was a really new way of thinking about, okay, like what does a view controller really do? He was like, you know, MVVM people say, oh, yeah, your view controller is in the view layer. But like, he really committed and said like, no, no, this really is the view layer. And then that way you can do traditional um, MVC. And if you remember traditional MVC, there's three parts and all three parts have a bidirectional arrow. So not only does the view controller and the view talk, and the or the controller and the view talk, the model and the controller talk, but also the view and the model talk. And nobody ever wants to commit and do that part of it, that extra line.
0: So, I mean, what does that look? <laughs>
1: well, that looks like your view controller holding on to um, whatever models it's bound to.
0: And what is the communication? I mean, if it's a bidirectional arrow, what does the communication from the view controller, which we're considering as as part of the view layer, back to the model look like?
1: The view mutates the v- model.
0: Okay. What does the controller do then? The
1: controller handles touch input and events and stuff.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not really sure how the view would need to update the or um, mutate the model if it's not going through user action right but
0: yeah i mean so i'm trying to figure out here what uh like what a what advantages this gives us and and b really how it differs from from mvvm i guess it differs from mvvm based on what you've told me so far in the the view and the model are allowed to communicate i'm a little bit unclear on on what that gets us i would say but yeah, I mean, what's, uh, like, what are the advantages of, of doing things this way? What it
1: gets you is, I mean, I, I'm not Dave, so I don't think I could do this quite the justice that it deserves. Um, there's a couple of differences. So one is that in, in MVVM, the view controller is still the boss. The view controller knows about the view model, and the view model knows about the model. But the view model doesn't directly know about the view controller, right? So that relationship is like a delegate relationship or a block relationship or a um, signal relationship. Sure. And so the view controller is still the boss there. But I think that part of what Dave's is proposing is that the view controller is not that anymore. The controller truly lives above the view controller um, in, in that it knows about the view controller, but the view controller doesn't know about it. I think that's part of it, and then you're asking about the connection between the model and the view. Well, the model and the view are connected because of um, the view needs to be able to display the model, so that's one link. But I don't know if the link goes back the other way, so I don't know if I can answer that part of it.
0: Hmm. And and what does that link look like? Is this do do you want to use any sort of like reactive or binding sort of technology here? Or
1: so I think it doesn't it doesn't um, prescribe anything in that department i would i would just use you know something simpler delegates whatever maybe if you like reactive you could do reactive Hmm. but there is a there is a connection there basically
0: huh Uh, do you know if talks from this conference are going to be put online anywhere
1: yeah they were recorded uh, and they will be online i just don't know when okay we'll have to uh, i'm sure they'll trickle around the internet
0: yeah i'd be curious to watch uh to watch dave's talk in particular
1: I should also say that, like, I'm kind of putting my twist on Dave's talk based on what I understood about it. But it's possible that Dave, like, if you listen to that talk directly, you'll get something slightly different.
0: I, I mean, I think that's true Anytime we try to summarize the talk.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's basically right. Okay. Yeah, I, I have the original Small Talk MVC paper on my computer, and I should really read this. <laughs> uh,
0: I guess I should, too. Let's I
1: I throw in the show notes. and yeah. Maybe we can... Um, Maybe we can, that could be aspirational.
0: Yeah, I, I have that saved somewhere here. Oh, there's a link in the show notes. Cool. Uh, so, what else happened at this conference? We there were some talks about MVVM, about the actual MVC, right? Uh, you gave a talk. How how did your talk go? Uh,
1: my talk was pretty good. I think it was the best version of the You Deserve Nice Things talk that I've given so far. Nice. So, I'm pretty happy about that. I, I One of the things I was doing in my previous versions of the talk was like, If there was a concept that I needed to illustrate, I would, like, use my hands. So I'd say, like, oh, if you're reversing an array, like, this object goes over here. And I'm, like, swinging my hands around wildly on stage. Mm -hmm. And I realized, like, I have slides. And those slides can have animations. And I'm allowed to use those animations. (laughs) And so what I ended up doing was, for this version of the talk, I fleshed out a lot of those animations a lot better so that it made more sense and so that like you could see the clean animations like showing you exactly what i wanted you to see and i think those came out really good i'm pretty happy with how that ended up happening
0: cool cool i'm glad to yeah. hear it uh yeah. i'll maybe i'll have to go and rewatch um re this version of your talk again once videos from this conference make their way onto the internet
1: yeah it should be good i, I think it came out good and then i added a couple of extra examples here and there Um, And I also added one more thing, which I haven't done in previous versions, which is essentially, this is a Patreon episode, so I can tell you all my secrets. (laughs) Um, There are these common objections that are raised every time you suggest that something should be an extension. And they're basically like, this is too esoteric. Nobody would ever use this. This is too specific, which which is a little bit different, which is sort of like, this is behavior that won't be used frequently enough, I think. I'm having a tough time distinguishing esoteric and specific, but I think they're different. And then, of course, this is too simple. We don't, we don't need this to be in the standard library mm-hmm. because I can just write this myself. And um, I basically go through and I find examples from the standard library of each that you would raise those objections about each of those things. But because they're already in the standard library, I think we kind of have a little bit of status quo bias. And so we say, oh, well, you know what? Maybe it's actually okay that, that, that some things are in there that we aren't going to use every day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. My example for the most esoteric was lexicographically precedes, mm. which is a function on sequence that takes another sequence. So it kind of compares two sequences. And you can sort of think about it as if you compare a string. Yeah, right? is this you like lo- local
0: aware of. comparison except for?
1: It's not local aware It's just based on if the elements are comparable.
0: Oh,
1: huh. So, the, yeah, the, that's sort of. Sorting strings is its own challenge. Yeah. That, that seems it, like a weird was,
0: name for like compare. Tell me if this comes before this other thing.
1: Right. But it's like for the whole array. It's very strange. So it compares huh. each element pairwise, but also it depends like who has more elements, who has less elements.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, weird. So hmm.
1: it's real weird. And like I've never had a chance to use it. I've always wanted to. I have no clue when you would want to use it. I just, it's, it boggles the mind but it's in there and i know that if i ever need it like it's going to be there ready
0: for me to use so yeah, uh, yeah well and and then you have it
1: yeah there is a there's a usage note here this method implements the mathematical notion of lexic- lexicographical ordering which has no connection to unicode if you are short- sorting strings to present to the end user use the string apis that perform localized comparison
0: hmm this generalization looking at wikipedia consists primarily in defining a total order over the sequences of elements of a finite totally ordered set, often called an alphabet, that is very confusing. Hmm. But this has nothing to do with strings, right? Well, I
1: think it like basically like, is the same thing as string does, ordering, but, but it string, doesn't. Yeah, string ordering—if you do it correctly—is much more complicated. Yeah, right. Like if you have a bunch of numbers at the beginning of your strings, you want to put one, two, three, and then ten. But if you just compare the individual letters, you'll get one, mm-hmm. then ten, then two, which you're not supposed to get. Stuff like that. And then, like, different um, languages have different um, alphabets and and orders of letters and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, we're pretty in the weeds here, so... <laughs>
1: I love the weeds. A-
0: anything else? Well, that's true. <laughs> anything else uh, from the conference that... Um, I don't know that, that really struck you or that you really enjoyed?
1: Uh it was really nice. It was a first time conference and they did a great job with you know putting it together and, and making sure everything worked great. There was like this cool luau that like rented out a tiki bar. It was all tiki themed. It was good. It was a really nice conference.
0: Fun. Did you yeah. uh did you have a chance to like get out into Atlanta in general at all? I've never been to Atlanta, so I have no idea what it's like.
1: So I did a little bit. On the last day, um, I went to the uh, aquarium with some friends. And the Georgia Aquarium is apparently one of the best aquariums in the world. Aquaria. And um, someone who was with us was from California, and she said that it's better than the Monterey Aquarium. Whoa, okay. Which is so that's pretty high, that's pretty high praise. Yeah. They have a giant tank there that has a whale shark in it. And I'm not sure if you know what a whale shark is. It's not a whale or a shark, it's just no. fish. Okay. But they're really, really big. They are huge
0: really yeah
1: like 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 a um maybe like the size of a really big pickup truck more than that that is that is huge they're really big they're huge they're yeah they're enormous they're the largest fish in the sea which is a fact that i learned while i was there
0: now that's distinct from being so they're still smaller than like whales though right because whales are mammals not fish
1: right and they're also i'm not sure if they're if sharks are also fish
0: i'm like mm, no sharks 80 90 sure they are
1: yeah sharks are fish and the largest is the whale shark 18 meters long 60 oh.
0: feet oh so so it is a kind
1: of shark it is a kind of shark i was mistaken about okay. that Okay, yeah so
0: hmm yeah it's not a whale is There's it many. uh it, does it eat the same things that sharks do like is it a does it eat other i don't know other fish does it have big teeth
1: so, in a twist, it actually eats the same thing as whales. <laughs> oh. It eats, like, krill and it has, like, filter. It has plankton and, and that eats plankton and that kind of thing.
0: Weird. Yeah. But it's a fish, not... Man. It's a, yeah. Uh,
1: the name whale shark refers to the fish's size being as large as some species of whales and also to its, fil- um, to its being a filter feeder
0: like baleen whales. That is really weird, like how does it's that super strange? How does that happen like you end up with a filter it the same way as something that is a mammal and like is not even related convergent evolution yeah convergent
1: evolution yeah, they were they they diverged at some point and then they um converged again at another point, so
0: that's wild.
1: there were giant manta rays there, which are also very large. the biggest ones of those are like I don't know. 20 25 feet in like from tipped from like left side to right side like laterally those are huge there were some very cute otters there were sea lions there were dolphins that were trained to like do tricks and stuff it was a cool aquarium so cool it's really all i got to do in atlanta but it was worth it
0: that sounds like fun all the same yeah Uh, my time in atlanta has been limited to uh the atlanta airport yeah yeah uh which is less fun
1: yeah that's a hell of an airport.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, do we want to pivot here and talk about something else that you've just that, that you been working on? Uh, main topic? Yeah, main topic. 17 um, minutes into the show.
1: That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, 17 minutes into a 30-minute show, we are ready to talk about the real thing Let's that do we it. want to talk about. So, I have been messing around with Bignum.
0: Okay. With <laughs> uh, with. with Big numbers.
1: Yeah. So imagine you want to work with an integer that is bigger than 64 bits. Mm-hmm. What do you do?
0: Uh, well, I think I would import a big num library and use <laughs> that to represent that integer.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> essentially, the way that it works is imagine if you wanted to represent a 128-bit number, you could represent that with two 64-bit numbers, right? Mm-hmm and you would put one of them would be sort of um, the low byte and one of them would be the high byte, essentially. So one of them would store the numbers from um, 0 to 9 quintillion, and then once you hit 9 quintillion, whatever 2 to the 64th is, and 1, then the high byte, the value of it becomes 1, and then the value of the other part resets down to 0, and then you start incrementing up again. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot more space than 128 bits. But even that sometimes is not enough. And so what you can do is instead of storing two 64-bit numbers, you store n 64-bit numbers.
0: Okay, that makes that makes sense.
1: Right. So essentially what that means is you store an array of numbers, and that array can be pretty much any size. The Easiest way to think about this is if you had a type that represented the numbers 0 through 9, and you put uh, a bunch of those next to each other in an array as though... Each one represented a digit, right? So as soon as you know, you're incrementing, you go from 0 all the way to 9. In your, first, in your first position in the array, the array only has one element. As soon as you hit 9 and you add 1 to it, then you need a second element in your array. The first element goes down to 0, and then the second element ticks up to 1. So now you're at 10. Mm-hmm. And you can keep doing that you know, as much as you want.
0: Uh, so that makes sense. So this is something that, you're so, that you are trying to implement in Swift just uh, for, your, for fun?
1: Kind of, yes. So there is a big int implementation in the Swift GitHub repo, but it's not in the standard library. So one of the cool little things about the Swift GitHub repo is that there's a section in there uh, under the folder test called prototypes. And the prototypes are like all kinds of really weird things that they don't want to commit to having in the standard library yet, but they do want to maybe test it make sure it continues to compile. They want to keep it somewhere, but they don't necessarily want to have it around um, to commit to it being public. So put a link to that in the show notes. Um, And essentially, BigInt is in there. So this, I believe, is mostly written by Nate Cook, although I'm not 100% sure. Um, That could be wrong. So essentially the way it works is you have um, it actually gives you the option it's generic over the type that's in that array which is really interesting so okay. you can put uint64 in there you can put uint8 which is you know i think that's like a nice choice because it's like easy to think about things in base 256 as opposed to base 9 quatillion or whatever <laughs>
0: Um, if you're targeting a, I mean, an architecture that uh, for you know, doesn't support 64-bit uh, integers natively for some reason, you wouldn't want to use 64-bit ints uh, as your sort of underlying type for big int. Yeah, checks
1: out. Yeah. So, and then there's also one other thing you can use, which is um, you could do it basically with a bit array, so with an array of yes, no, you know, true, false. Oh, cool. And so that's like a giant binary number, right? Yeah. So if you're incrementing, you start with no elements in the array. Then you have a one in the array in the first place, and then you increment again, and then you end up with a zero in the ones place, and then a one in the twos place, right? Because it's base two, so it's a ones place, a twos place, a fours place, and an eights place, mm-hmm. which is pretty interesting. So there's also a version of it in there that is uh, sort of a bit uh, bit implementation essentially,
0: sure. which that is pretty makes cool. Sense.
1: Yeah, so that's pretty tight. So that's basically how BigNum works. And it's actually really interesting because, you know, let's say you want to implement adding. So I actually implemented some of this stuff in the service of so- implementing something bigger. Uh, because BigInt already exists, I want to do something slightly more interesting than that. Okay. Which is um, the ultimate goal is to implement big decimal. So I want to have a number that is infinitely precise and supports numbers less than one. Okay right cool so yeah so that's the ultimate goal but th- to do that you have to do a bunch of the big int stuff first so imagine okay let's say you want to add two big int numbers that are let's say just for the sake of argument backed by uint eights right they can go from zero to 255 and share values for each array place yeah so you want to yeah add i was those gonna ask
0: of, how uh, like how arithmetic with these numbers like looks and works
1: Yeah, very carefully is the answer. Um, Okay, so let's say you have two one-digit numbers. And remember, each of those digits is base 256. So each of those digits is 0 to 255. Let's say you're adding 200 and 200, right? If you try to add those normally, what's going to happen?
0: You'll overflow.
1: Yeah, you overflow. And so Swift, I think, traps if you overflow an integer. Yes. It crashes. There's also an ampersand plus which will unchecked crash. So it's like a little bit faster because it won't check, but you're not guaranteed to get valid memory.
0: Wait, does that unchecked crash or does that uh, add but allow overflow to happen?
1: I think it allows overflow to happen and then like eventually it ends up crashing.
0: Huh. Or something. I don't think it actually ends up crashing. If I'm remembering my Swift stuff right... That is your, the equivalent, like, ampersand plus is the equivalent of how plus works in, like, C, C++, all, all, a bunch of other languages where it just silently overflows.
1: Interesting.
0: Overflow um, we should double-check this.
1: Yeah. All the overflow operators begin with an ampersand. However, when you specifically want an overflow tr- uh, condition to truncate the number of available bits, you can opt into this behavior rather than trigger an error. Okay, so you're totally right about this.
0: Yeah, so I think it's it's still safe in terms of memory yeah. safety. Maybe not, um, you know, if you're doing this, you know that you may get uh, you, you may allow overflows in your arithmetic, but it's not right. going to crash. Which
1: could cause other bugs. You could always assume that adding a plus b is always going to give you a number bigger than a and b, but you can end up with one smaller.
0: Right, uh, and yeah. that's why Swift normally would trap, and you have to opt out of that behavior specifically.
1: Yeah, very very reasonable. Okay, cool. Thank you for checking me on that. So that, those are the, those are two of the ways you can add. But it turns out there's a third way that you can add. Whoa. And there is, yeah, there's a function called adding reporting overflow. And so what that will do is it will return a
0: tuple. There's a function it, on, on integer or on? Uh, it's on is it a free- binary
1: integer. Okay. So that's like the protocol that represents int8, int64, int32, and so on right? So when you go to add, it returns a tuple, and the tuple has the overflowed value and then a true or false for if you need to carry into the next bit, into the next digit. Okay. So the way that, that works, if you add 200 oh. and 200, you end up with 400 and subtract out 256, so you're ending up with, I think, like, 134, 144, something like that?
0: And this tells you that is there's an overflow. Yeah, and, and so it gives you, you know... true
1: in the has overflowed, like, kind of spot and so when that happens then you know you need to go to the next array position mm-hmm. and tick that up by one
0: totally Isn't uh, that cool yeah that makes a lot of sense and this seems like it would make implementing like big int actually pretty straightforward
1: yeah it's actually not so bad division is weird and we'll get to it but yeah multiplication addition subtraction are all pretty straightforward okay. they kind of work the way you expect how um, does
0: division work then
1: yeah, real quick, so um, subtraction gives, there's a function that reports overflow, and that's actually, a, it reports like if you need to borrow from the next column, essentially, Yeah. You, you do minus one. Multiplication returns to a high bit and a low bit, so multiplying two u int 8s can never be bigger than a u int 16, so it'll give you the low the low byte and high byte, does okay. that make sense? Yeah. Yeah? And then division, god, division. Um, I actually have not figured out division yet. <laughs> Part of it is because I've been trying to write big num and big decimal at the same time. This is where I got stuck, essentially, and this is where I need help. Okay, so big num, pretty straightforward. Big division, big sorry, big int division is not crazy. So what you do is you say, okay, well, if I'm divided by zero, fatal error. If I'm divided by one, return the divisor or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and if I'm dividing, if I'm being divided by something bigger than me, return zero. Those those are the easy cases you can catch really fast. Yeah. Once you have caught those, then you got to do weird stuff. So you basically have to do long division. Let's say you want to divide the number two fifty by five, right? So you try to divide. And this is in
0: our our hypothetical two, uh our hypothetical eight bit. Well, unsigned. imagine
1: imagine it as decimals. So imagine that you have. Base 10, you have a, uh, an array of 0, 5, and 2. So 2 is the 100's place, 5 is the 10's place, and 0 is the uh, other place, okay. the 1's place. Mm-hmm. And you're dividing by 5. So the first thing you have to do is you have to divide your first, your like most significant bit, which is your 100's place, by the number that you're dividing by, divisor, I think. And then you'll see that that is less than, so you, you add another bit to it, and then you try to divide that yeah see this is where I get broken because you can't your numbers are u ints you can't divide a u int by two. oh that's right. you can like pass it for divide for division you can pass it a high bit and a low bit, I think for the dividing um reporting overflow function okay or dividing full width is what they call it dividing full width
0: dividing full width all mm-hmm. right
1: yeah so you, this gets real weird yeah so you you pass it a high and a high and a low bit and that way it knows where it can borrow from basically and then it will return to you a quotient which is the result of the division operation and a remainder which is good so then once you've done that then you have to then you have to multiply them back together multiply the quotient and the divisor together subtract that from those two places and then you're left with zero and so you know I'm not gonna do long division on a podcast. It's crazy. Yeah. The point is it's really, really hard.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the implementation in bigint.swift now, and um yeah, I, I uh this is gonna take me a, a a little bit of thinking to work through what this is doing exactly.
1: Yeah. So the function is called div it's like dividing internal divide or something.
0: Um I'm just looking at something called uh mutating func divide.
1: That, I think, is um, a different type.
0: Oh, am I looking at the – oh, I'm, I mean I'm looking at a word.
1: The word that you're looking at is a word that um, – so word is what Nate uses to mean like each element in the array. So you can have a word of size 8, which is like a U at 8, a word of size 1, which is a bit – or a word of size sixty-four, right? And mm-hmm. so he has an additional—he has additional implementations for words that are non-standard sizes, so that he can use like bit arrays and stuff.
0: Huh. Okay. Um, but if
1: you look for a function called internal divide, that's the function here. that actually does the division, and it is like bit shifting and like crazy stuff that I do not oh, understand. Yeah,
0: I was looking at an implementation for a different uh, for a different word type. I think.
1: Yeah. So this is like crazy, crazy stuff at this point. Like, you want to talk about weeds. Like, this is the weeds. It is very wild stuff that happens here. So then there's, like, all this bit shifting that I don't really understand. Like, temp RHS shift equals 1. I don't know. It is crazy. I have not figured out division yet. And then to throw a monkey wrench in things, if you want to divide – with the decimal places, like I have I, – and then you also have signs. Let's not forget about signs, right? If you multiply two positives, you get a positive. Multiply positive and negative, you get a negative. Multiply two negatives, you get a positive. So you have to like handle that as well. That, that stuff is actually not so bad. I yeah. did that. But then like when it came time to do this, I realized I'm storing things at base 256. And I was storing basically like an offset for where the decimal should go. Okay. And the problem is that let's say you want to represent a pretty normal number like 0.1 you can't represent 0.1 in base 256 without an infinitely repeating decimal place.
0: Sure. Uh, And this is a fairly common... I mean, this is a common problem, right? Can you represent 0.1 even in, like, base 10? Yeah, base base 10 you can. Well, base 10, sorry. In base 2? No. Like, there are some really, like, just not unusual numbers that you just can't represent precisely in a floating point number and that's just how it is
1: yeah exactly so one way to think about this is you can't represent one third in base 10 without repeating numbers Mm -hmm. anything that's not evenly divisible by the base can't be represented without infinitely repeating decimals right so then i was like okay well that sucks and then i kind of just like started spinning my wheels i was like well I could just store it out to 50 places. That's, like, probably more precision than anybody ever needs. I think that's, like, <laughs> the amount of precision that that crazy, like, gravitational wave detector thing had. Like, just store it out to however how many places that the precision is so accurate that it could never possibly matter for any purpose that any human had. That's one idea. Or, like, and then parameterize that as the other idea so that users could come in and say, okay, well, I actually want a... Big decimal that's parameterized out to a hundred places because hundred yeah. an, an array of a hundred elements is not that. It's expensive. not crazy. Like, yeah, that's
0: fine. So so you're working your right way here to implementing a um, like an arbitrary fixed precision sort of uh, you you choose your precision yeah, decimal exactly. type. Yeah, exactly.
1: Right. So yeah. So one option was okay. Like fine. It's going to be infinitely repeating. I'll just deal with it. And just have a bunch of places out. So that wasn't really appealing. Then one option was like, what if I made an enum that was had cases for zero through nine and then I conformed that to binary integer and I implemented like add reporting overflow and all that stuff on that. Because that'd be pretty easy, right? If you got like you have a big switch statement and you say, like, if my two addition operands are eight and eight, then I would return a six, right? Because it's sixteen and Mm -hmm. I would report overflow. Like that's not so bad. I could implement that. But then each function needs like 100 lines in, this, in each switch statement because you have a grid of 100 by 100 or a 10 by 10, right? Oh, yeah. So that uh, that implementation started getting really hairy really fast. And I was like, can I, can I code general this with sorcery? And, and I'm that was like, the next dumb. question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was another crazy thing. And eventually I was just like, this is crazy. What are you doing? <laughs> so that's kind of where I am now.
0: Interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. so I have a couple a couple questions. How are you testing this uh, as you go along, as and as you work?
1: Uh, just unit tests. Okay. Um, the this is actually a slam dunk case for unit tests, I think, because totally, you, yeah, you have a bunch of cases that you don't want to break while you solve new ones. So let's say my addition at first didn't handle positives and negatives. Once I added that behavior in, I was able to make sure my old tests still passed and my new ones passed too, and it was like perfect for TDD.
0: Yeah, that seems like a textbook use case. Yeah. Um, Absolutely.
1: The one thing that you can't do is you can't test division because that crashes. You can't test anything that crashes.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Once you get an implementation that doesn't crash, you can start testing it.
1: That's right. Well, but what I mean is like if you want to divide by zero, you want it to crash. And you can never confirm that that behavior always crashes.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: So, like, you could, like, wrap it in a function that throws and make that, like, a testable function or, like, something internal, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then your externally visible public thing would crash whenever there's a throw. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's one option. But it's tough. Yeah, That's a tough thing to hit with testing.
0: Testing things that, like, actually throw fatal errors, uh, ding, in swift is, um... Gotcha. There we go. Thank you. (laughs) Is, uh... Is hard, there's really not um I feel like a while ago I had read an article somewhere uh where it might have been Mike Ash or someone equally uh smart slash crazy went through like how you can actually catch those uh, catch things like a, a failure or a preconditioned failure in in tests and verify them. Uh, That's
1: pretty cool. If you find that, definitely send that to me.
0: Yeah, I'll look around for it. Uh, maybe not while we're recording here, but uh, I'll, I'll try to find that for you. And if I find it, I'll throw it in the show notes. The yeah, second thing that I wanted to note is uh, not immediately related to Swift, but you know the uh, origin story of OpenSSL, the like cryptography library that a large part of the Internet relies on? Um, Didn't, wasn't
1: it made by like, some college kid? It was like, just a project for fun or something?
0: Uh, I don't remember if it was a college kid, but um, it originated because uh, the the guy or guys behind it uh, wanted to play with uh, big integer math. Really? Yeah. Like, that is why this thing exists. That is Um, so funny. Let's see here. So,
1: clearly, my next step is to write a cryptography library. Uh, Please don't. Obviously. (laughs)
0: At least that's uh that's the lore that, that I've heard. The Wikipedia article on really open cool. Excel project history is um is pretty sparse. Uh, yeah. But, well yeah. if you
1: find a source for that, that's really cool. Oh
0: I'll, I'll bet I can find a source for that. Um Yeah, that's cool, man.
1: So my last idea on implementing integer or implementing decimal division is what if I represented my number like, what if my big decimal were just a big int wrapped in, just use Nate's big int, and wrap it and give it a decimal place in, in, dec, in tens, right? Decimal means 10. Sure. So okay. What that would do then is, because the big int knows how to represent itself as decimal, because that's also actually really hard to do if you have a base 256 number. Like, if, you have, if your word size is 8 bits, 1 byte you're printing out a base two, a base 10 numbers really hard. It was like the first thing I tried to do. And then I realized it was like actually really, really hard. Yeah. What you end up doing is dividing by 10 repeatedly mm-hmm. to get the remainders and those remainders become your digits.
0: Yeah. Wild. And that's, I mean, that's how you do it. There's really, there's no other way to do that. There's
1: no other way to do it. And so I was thinking I could treat big int as a black box that, that, to me, holds a decimal number, even though internally it can be implemented however it wants. And then I would store a decimal offset. And then adding is easy because you just need to add a bunch of zeros onto the end to make your decimal offsets line up, right? Mm -hmm. So then once they add up, then you can just add them. Pretty straightforward. Dividing, or sorry, subtracting is equally easy. Multiplying, if I remember from grade school... You just multiply them as though they're integers and then add up the number of decimal places that you're offsetting.
0: Yeah. And I so that's pretty straightforward. Right, yeah.
1: And then division, I can't remember what the rule is.
0: Yeah, so I honestly... And I got
1: stuck there too.
0: <laughs> yeah, honestly, if you gave me like a pad of paper right now and asked me to do long division the way I learned in what, like fourth grade, I...
1: You should try it. You should really try it. It seems like
0: something I should be able to do. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, not only that, but it's just like it's in there. It's it's clanking around in your brain. Yeah. But you just haven't used it in 25 okay, years so or whatever. 5 into
0: let's say 250. All right, I'll work on that after the show.
1: Yeah, there you go. Um, um and yeah, and then like with those decimal places, I just don't know what to do. So, then maybe what I could do is big decimal could just be a big wrapper on big int and then done. You just have to keep track of the decimal place.
0: Uh that yeah, I think could work. That makes sense. That could work. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be totally your own implementation, but uh there's no no problem with it just building on like code that yeah. works and is tested from someone else.
1: Yeah. Um and you know, if I really wanted to be pure about it, I could say, okay, fine then. Now that I know that this strategy works, I'm going to finish my big num implementation and then um that way I will have written it and then wrap it for big decimal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bunch of really interesting problems it's it is like I don't have any practical use for it, like I guess except for my um fledgling cryptography
0: library which uh, by the way, I found a source now. <laughs> Uh, on, this is on uh, a, the blog of a guy named Matthew Green, who's a cryptographer at uh, Johns oh, he's a, Hopkins. He's really good, right? Yeah, he's he's really good. Um, in the footnotes, he says that the original version of this post repeated a story that uh, the, a guy named Eric Young wrote OpenSSL as a way to learn C. In fact, he wrote it as a way to learn big num division. That's so funny. <laughs> so you're I respect uh, that you're following in some great footsteps here. All and right, and so Matthew sorry, T. Green, we'll put him in the show notes Yeah, too. sorry to interrupt. I'll, I'll throw a link no, no, to his no, post in the show notes.
1: Yes, you should. That's really funny. That's great, man. <laughs> yeah, so that's basically all I have on Bignum. Uh, I wanted to throw in one last thing, which is, uh, mm, I can't say his name, uh, the pinboard guy, Macha Shug-
0: Yeah, uh, the, Yeah, we, we all know and love him.
1: That's right. He basically said he didn't know anything about crypto. And so he went in and implement, he went in and um, did this challenge. And so it's CryptoPals.com. And it's provided by this company that does crypto stuff. And basically, the first tier is like, you have to implement Zor, and you have to implement Base64 encryption, and you have to implement all these things. And then there's eight sets of eight problems. And you just do all of cryptography like hashing, Diffie-Helfman, randomness, all of it.
0: Oh, this seems and really
1: cool. So it might be really fun if I finish this Big number library to be able to then turn around to use that to like solve these. Because these have been on my list to do for like five years, and I've never done them. I started
0: them in Python. Yeah, I remember seeing this a while repo. ago, but never actually started them. I probably should because, uh, yeah, it's been a while since I, like, since my undergrad security class where I learned... About Diffie Hellman and RSA, and even like the internals of how hash algorithms work. Yeah. And I really I think could... it would
1: be really useful because, like, I did the, I did like probably five of the first problems, like five of the first eight. Mm-hmm. And like, I didn't really know how base 64 encoding worked. I know now because I wrote it, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's the so, way to learn. Yeah. But yeah, this definitely seems, yeah, I really should brush up on this.
1: Yeah, so maybe this could be like a little challenge and we could like do this once a week or something.
0: Yeah, that could be fun. Yeah, something
1: like that. Maybe two problems a week. That could be a new podcast.
0: Yeah, it could that's be. That's
1: actually a really good idea for a podcast.
0: Mm, it might be. Or we may end up talking through our implementations of, uh, say, AES in ECB mode. and um, <laughs> <it'll> <laughs> Well, be we can talk about why that's useful. I don't really to. know
1: why that's useful. so.
0: I don't know. Could be cool. Maybe we should talk about that.
1: Yeah. Um, other than that, yeah, that's what I want to talk about. About big nums.
0: Uh, that sounds like a fun project and definitely a good learning experience. Yeah, I'm curious to um, hear. Uh, I'm curious to see how the rest of this goes. Are you planning to like put the source up anywhere once you get this all working, or is this purely like a personal?
1: Uh, the source is up. Oh, okay, cool. Um, it's it's my GitHub handle plus big decimal. But it's not working. It's like division obviously is not implemented. Um, mm-hmm. And I think multiplication mostly works. Oh, I was doing multiplication with um, – I was starting to solve the decimal offset problems. Like I can do yeah. normal integer multiplication, but I was handling the decimal offsets. That doesn't work yet, and the division is not done at all. Adding and subtracting should be good. Equatability should be good. I need a bunch of helpers to, like convert to and from – the normal types that we traffic in and like integer literals and float literals and stuff like that, mm-hmm. like converting from floats to a infinite precision decimals can be really hard.
0: Yeah. Um Do you mean I- yeah. infinite precision or uh, like arbitrary precision? Like you pick your, whatever precision you need.
1: Uh, I don't know the difference to be totally honest with you.
0: Well, so when, if I want to convert a float to whatever type you're designing, do I need to say like, I want to convert, like, this to... Uh, I, I want this number, and I want it precise to n like, places? Or right. are you trying for an exact representation?
1: I'm trying... I think I'm trying for a representation that's so exact. Obviously, it can be infinite, because you can't store infinity, infinity threes if you want to store, you know, right. one-third. But so precise that nobody would ever want anything more precise.
0: Uh, that's a 64K would be enough for anyone.
1: I mean, but... Yeah, there is some level of precision that's like, okay, this is actually enough. Like, isn't it like 30 digits of pi is enough to calculate the circumference of the universe to a golf ball or whatever?
0: I can't say I've ever heard that specifically, but uh, who knows? (laughs) Uh, Digits of pi to calculate the circumference of the universe. I have Mm -hmm. a siren.
1: Yeah, if if you have 39 digits of pi, you can calculate the circumference of the observable universe to a hydrogen atom like
0: we really need more precision than that well it depends what you're doing yeah that's true maybe if you're doing uh if you want to calculate the circumference of the universe to within uh, a quark you're gonna need a lot more decimals yeah Yeah, that's true
1: um one thing i really like is is you know how gps numbers have
0: like a decimal something after the decimal place uh gps you mean coordinates yeah, sorry, GPS numbers. <laughs> just just want to make yeah. sure we're on the same page, yeah.
1: Yeah, so GPS coordinates have like a decimal bit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it's in decimal. And so the thing that, it's actually really intuitive once I thought about it, but I hadn't thought about it. So like if you have five places, it's enough to be precise to like 30 meters. If you add a sixth place, that means you're 10 times more precise. That means you're down to three meters. I'm making these numbers
0: up. but it, I was going to say, I think know, five decimal places is way more precise than 30 meters. But yes, I take your point.
1: Yeah, and then if you have seven decimal places, it goes from three meters to uh,
0: thirty centimeters.
1: Thirty centimeters is a foot, and then if you go ten more than that, it's you know yeah three centimeters. Like you don't you almost never need more precision than that. Like if you're driving a car, you don't need seven digits of 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 yeah. GPS coordinates.
0: Well, it depends. Autonomous cars might
1: no, and I mean like sometimes you really and I think like the military has you know really precise versions of GPS that are important to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Here we go. If you have six decimal places, that's precise to 111 millimeters, so 10 centimeters for six decimal places. Um, Five decimal places is 1.1 meters. Four decimal places is 11 meters. But, like, obviously it makes sense that if you add one more digit with 10 units of precision, you're going to get 10 times more accurate. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't really thought about that. I thought that was pretty cool.
0: I do. I do always laugh when you go to. Uh, I think even Google Maps at least used to do this, but you go to like a map something or you use an API to like geocode an address or something, and it gives you the answer out to like fifteen decimal places. Yeah. And, like is... you know, <laughs> that's awfully precise. Yeah. Like this, it's um... yeah identify uh, like the position of a speck of dirt on the roof <laughs> of of my house. So
1: the point is, how, many, how, many, how much precision do we really need? Well, like is 50 enough? I think 50 is probably enough.
0: For, uh, for, this, for this project, it's probably enough. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: if you have eight decimal digits of precision for your coordinate, you can measure things down to one millimeter, and it's good for specialized surveying, such as tectonic plate mapping.
0: Yeah, there's some interesting techniques that they use to get GPS to down uh, down to that level of precision, actually. Um, you Google, um, I think, W-A-A-S, Wide Area Augmentation System. Yeah.
1: Anyway. Oh, look at this. Well, that's homework for next time.
0: Yes, yeah, so this is homework for next time. Oh, and then you have L-A-A-S, Local Area Augmentation System, as Ooh. well. So these are things that we use... Um, I guess mainly in aviation to give uh, airplanes and, you know, aircraft very, very precise position information. Interesting. Uh, Including, uh, you know, very, very precise um, instrument uh, landing uh, capabilities. wild. Anyway, it's cool stuff. Thank you very much, Patreon people, for your support. Yes, we do appreciate it. We appreciate it. And we'll talk to you next week. See you, Chris. Bye, Sarish.